If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 30. I'll be in verses 11 through 16 of chapter 30, and then all of chapter 31 today. We're concluding a series on the tabernacle. Uh, I wasn't here, and I probably would not have preached on the tabernacle on Christmas Day, uh, but we are finishing this mini-series in the book of Exodus on the tabernacle today. Uh, the next three Sundays, we will be talking about God's design for male and female. In the beginning, God created he, them, male and female. So we'll talk about God's design and creation God's design for the home and God's design for the church in a three-part series that Pastor Allen will begin next Sunday. But this Sunday we conclude in the book of Exodus for now, and we'll pick up and finish Exodus this fall. So I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. It's a longer passage, so if you are unable to stand for a little bit, you're more than welcome to remain seated for this Sunday. So this is Exodus chapter 30. Beginning in verse 11, I'll read through verse 16, and then we'll read chapter 31. The Lord spoke to Moses, When you take a census of the Israelites to register them, each of the men must pay a ransom for his life to the Lord as they are registered. Then no plague will come on them as they are registered. Everyone who is registered must pay half a shekel, according to the sanctuary shekel, 20 geras to the shekel. This half shekel is a contribution to the Lord. Each man who is registered 20 years old or more must give this contribution to the Lord. The wealthy may not give more, and the poor may not give less than half a shekel when giving the contribution to the Lord to atone for your lives. Take the atonement price from the Israelites and use it for the service of the tent of meeting. It will serve as a reminder for the Israelites before the Lord to atone for your lives. And now in chapter 31, the Lord also spoke to Moses, Look, I have appointed by name Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting, and to carve wood for work in every craft. I have also selected Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, to be with him. I have put wisdom in the heart of every skilled artisan in order to make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat that is on top of it, and all the other furnishings of the tent, the table with its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the basin with its stand, the specially woven garments, both the holy garments for the priest Aaron and the garments for his sons to serve as priests, the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the sanctuary. They must make them according to all that I have commanded you. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you will know that I am the Lord who consecrates you. Observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Whoever profanes it must be put to death. If anyone does work on it, that person must be cut off from his people. Work may be done for six days, but on the seventh day, there must be a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. 
Anyone who does work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. The Israelites must observe the Sabbath, celebrating it throughout their generations as a permanent covenant. It is a sign forever between me and the Israelites. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. But on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. When he finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing in honor of it. Would you please be seated? I invite you to bow your heads and pray with me. And now, O Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Heavenly Father, would you speak to us through your word? May your spirit apply it to our lives, and may Christ be exalted. We pray in his name. Amen. God is holy. He's unique. Set apart. If you started the uh, Truth for Life 365 devotional, you read that he's creator. He transcends his creation. God's ways are always perfect. In this closing message on the tabernacle, we look at a common theme that we found throughout our study in the tabernacle, and that is Moses and all the Israelites were expected to do things God's way in the construction of the tabernacle and in the living of their lives as God's chosen people, doing things God's way. This certainly has been the expectation when we considered things like the exacting dimensions of all the furniture. Like, you got to get it this way and just this size. When we considered things like the detailed instructions for the garments— certain threads and colors of threads and the type of dye and the amount of incense spices to be mixed. There was the ordination ceremony for the priest with all of its details. God has been explicit about a number of details when he gives his commands about the tabernacle. And so I want you to consider with me three final things that God appointed, God's way, for his people and how they relate to us in 2023. First of all, we're going to consider back in chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, that God appointed an atonement price for census taking. God appointed an atonement price for census taking. Now, I want to look at this idea from two different perspectives. First, from the practical perspective, and then from a symbolic perspective. This atonement money that was collected whenever a census would be taken. Practically speaking, what is a census for? It's to count, to number the people. Oftentimes, it would be used to determine how much taxes should be uh, doled out, you know, how to take taxes from people. Or it would be used to number the people who could fight in a war, to prepare for battle, the Israelites were a theocracy. That means they were under God's direct rule. And God had given them commands and given them uh, instructions on how to take care of one another. In other words, there should really be no need 
to number the people for taxes because God had built in laws to protect the poor and the oppressed. Furthermore, God was the one who would instruct when it was time to go to battle, when it was time to take the promised land. It was God who would lead and guide his people. And so you might notice as you look at chapter 30, verses 11 through 16, that there is no actual command to take censuses. It's more like God is placing a natural deterrent and a reminder for when a census might need to be taken. He places a natural deterrent and a reminder. So let's look at those two ideas. The deterrent is, if, if you were the king, practically speaking, this would be an unpopular law, right? You're going to take a census, and all of a sudden, a not, a not an insignificant amount of silver is being required from every person, whether they're rich or poor. And so that kind of places an unpopularity to taking of a census, uh, furthermore, uh, it would be uh, impractical for them to go through this and, and go through the process. When a ruler is taking this census, the, uh, the Lord is saying that each one has to pay an atonement price. So there's the reminder. Practically, it's impractical because of the, uh, the cost for everyone. And the reminder that's built in is that when you Uh, are counted, you have to give money to show that you are atoned for, that you are part of God's people. So students of the Bible, when they think of census taking, might think of David's ill-advised census, right? Because like even boneheaded Joab knew that it was a bad idea for David to do whatever he was doing because David was probably doing it for bad reasons, prideful reasons. That's what Joab says in 2 Samuel 24, May the Lord your God multiply the troops a hundred times more than they are, O king, while my Lord the king merely looks on. But why does my Lord the king want to do this? Joab knows that it's bad news to take a census, especially the kind of census David took, which did not require the Israelites to pay the atonement price. They weren't being reminded that they belonged first to God and then to the kingdom of Israel. See, David's census was not at God's direction. It was done for David's own boasting. Because the way that God appoints a census to happen reminds a person that if they are going to be counted, they are counted first and foremost as belonging to God. An individual can only be counted when he first and foremost is atoned for. And so this is where the symbolism comes to play. Symbolically, let's consider the fact that the tabernacle, we're going to use our newfound tabernacle knowledge, if you've been here for the whole series, to to kind of look into the symbolism of what this silver was actually used for. The Bible tells us that the silver bases that went all the way around the tabernacle outer courtyard and all the silver bases that were used between the holy place and the holy of holies were made from this atonement money. Did you know that? Look in Exodus chapter 38, verses 25 through 27. The silver from the community of those of the community who were registered was 7,544 pounds, according to the sanctuary shekel. One-fifth of an ounce per man, that is half a shekel according to the sanctuary shekel. You see that? That's the same amount in Exodus 30, right, that was required. 
from everyone 20 years or old or more who had crossed over into the registered group, 603,550 men. There were 7,500 pounds of silver used for what? To cast the bases of the sanctuary and the bases of the curtain. 100 bases from 7,500 pounds. 75 pounds for each base. Have you ever seen that pipe and drape stuff? You ever seen it like at an exhibit hall or something like that? And they have the little base and they put a pipe in there and then they put the curtain across it. These bases were made out of pure silver, 75 pounds a piece. And symbolically, the silver from the atonement money thus formed the foundation of the place where God dwelled and where God met with his people. Charles Spurgeon preached an entire message. I will spare you the whole message, but I will give you some little insights of this idea of the redemption price going into the silver sockets, as he called them, that held up the tabernacle. What he says is that all of the boards of incorruptible wood and precious gold stood on the redemption price. The curtains of fine linen and the veil of matchless workmanship, the whole structure rested on nothing less than a solid mass of silver that had been paid for with atonement money. There was only one exception to this. And again, our tabernacle knowledge comes into play. The, the curtain in between the courtyard and the holy place where the priest would minister, there was the, you know, the uh, lampstand and the table of the presence and the incense altar in the bigger outer room. When they would cross into the holy place, they were crossing over a threshold. And those bases of that curtain were made of bronze because the atonement money was not to be tread upon. Much like the writer of Hebrews says, do not tread underfoot the blood of Jesus Christ. You also remember that the door at Passover, the blood was painted on three sides, but not to be tread upon. And so I think we're beginning to feel a little bit of the symbolism come into play. But consider this further. We're not just talking about the tabernacle having a foundation that related to atonement and redemption. The temple itself, a later fulfillment of the place where God would dwell, was also on the foundation of redemption. Abraham offering up his son Isaac as a substitute for our life. The uh, the ram caught in the thickets, substitutionary atonement, took place at that very place where the temple would be built. Furthermore, if we connect the census of 2 Samuel 24, do you remember what David said? He said, let the angel of the Lord fulfill his plague, and for three days he was under God's punishment for having taken that very census. Where did the angel of the Lord stop? At the threshing floor of Aruna. And there the angel of the Lord stood. And David went to offer sacrifices to God, a sacrifice and a burnt offering. And what did Aruna do? He said, I'll just give it to you. I'll give you the goats and the lambs and everything you need. I'll give you the threshing floor. I'll give you the place for it. And what did David reply? Look at the, the exchange in 2 Samuel 24. Your majesty, Aruna, gives you everything here to the king. So the, the guy wants to give it away. Then he said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. But David replies to him, no, I insist on buying it from you for a price. Verse 24. 
For I will not offer to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 20 ounces of silver. David knew he had missed a step. He had forgotten to collect atonement silver. And he was guilty of pride. And yet at the threshing floor, he pays a price, a redemption price, if you will. And he makes things right with the Lord. And the angel sheaths the sword. And God says in 1 Chronicles 21, it's enough. He accepts David's atonement money. He accepts this sacrifice that is made and the redemption price that is put on this place where the temple would be built. The foundation of the place where God would dwell with his people should always be built upon atonement, redemption. This is the symbolism. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to never forget the ransom work of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins is the foundation of why we meet. That Jesus paid the price and God said it is enough when Jesus said the work is done, it's finished. And he offered his life God received the ransom for your life and for mine. And that is the foundation of the church where we meet with God and we dwell with him. But now let's skip on down to chapter 31. Not only had God appointed an atonement price for taking a census, God appointed workers for the creation of the tabernacle. Now, God did not need to, as our, you know, government might do, he didn't need to go out and put out an RFP to multiple contractors. In fact, he established justification for a sole source contract. He knew exactly who Moses should ask to do the tabernacle building. The text tells us in verse 2 that God appointed Bezalel for the job. I'm sorry, Boeing, you're out of luck. Apparently, God determined your ability to construct Old Testament tabernacles was far beyond the scope of your existing capabilities, your admirable V-22 work notwithstanding. All right, I was expecting a little bit more laughter there from the contracting type in the congregation, but I guess even like a little head nod and a snicker is the kind of thing that would be like a belly laugh for the rest of us that aren't nerdy contractors, right? Like, you just got to know the audience, right? I guess. I don't know. All kidding aside, this is the first time in the Bible that someone is said to have been filled with the Spirit. Interesting, isn't it? First time in the Scripture where a person is said to have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And here is for a creative task of an artisan. The CSB Study Bible says that in both the Old and the New Testament, being filled with the Spirit generally refers to a God-given ability to perform some action or some service to God. So we can learn from this principle that God's spirit enables God's people to do God's work for God's glory. God's spirit enables God's people to do his work for his glory. Sometimes that work is not very glamorous. What do you think of? 
when you think of somebody being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, maybe our text today or a New Testament text like Acts chapter 6 will get us pointed in the right direction. Because in Acts chapter 6, you'll remember the problem was there was uh, the overlooking of the Hellenistic widows in the church. Pentecost, there's a lot of people in town. There's people to feed, people to take care of. And they say, we have a problem. So how do we fix it? We're going to look for spirit-filled men to do what? To serve, to distribute food. Not a very highfalutin job, but they were filled with the Spirit to do that task. So how about you? Are you filled with the Spirit for the task of serving in the nursery? Are you filled with the Spirit to pick weeds on workday? Are you filled with God's Spirit to make a meal for someone who just got out of the hospital? or for giving somebody a ride to the church. The Holy Spirit enables God's people to do God's work for his glory. Then we look lastly now at verses 12 through 18 of chapter 31, and we see thirdly that God appointed the Sabbath as a sign of Israel's special relationship to him. God appointed the Sabbath as a sign of Israel's special relationship to him. Now, this might seem to be a strange place to put a reminder about Sabbath-keeping. But if you think about it, God had just given Moses a whole lot of work to do, right? Like Bezalel, Aholiab, they're going to be busy. There's a lot of construction to be done. And Bezalel and the subcontractors are forbidden to work on Saturdays. And this was to show that they were set apart. They were intended to enjoy the rest that God was entering into after having redeemed, done the incredible work of redeeming his people out of slavery to Egypt. So in verse 13, we see God instruct Moses, tell the Israelites, you must observe my Sabbaths For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, so that you will know that I am the Lord who consecrates you. Now, as we consider the Sabbath as a sign for Israel, I want us to explore three things about it that I hope you can see in the text. First, the Sabbath was affixed to a reality that existed ever since creation. Second, the Sabbath endures as a reality of sorts because it was a part of God's moral law. We'll consider the nuance to that. And three, breaking the Sabbath had severe consequences. I think all of that can be seen right here in chapter 31. So let's look first at the sign of the Sabbath being fixed to or attached to a reality that existed before Exodus. It existed since creation. Like the establishment of marriage happened at the time of creation, Having one day of the week set apart for the worship of God was an act of permanent significance. It's what theologians call a creation ordinance. The very nature of our creation, like humanity itself, carries in it hints that we need something like this. John Owen says that God did not make us merely like 
beasts. Okay, we're not just terrestrial and beasts. Nor are we only spiritual, like the angels. I love the phrase he uses. He says, we humans converse in a sort of amphibious manner between the upper and the lower set of creatures. God created angels, all spiritual. God created beasts, all earthly. We are both earthly and spiritually designed, created to commune with God and to live and dwell on this earth. Our constitution, being both spiritual and earthly, we benefit from this God-given gift of a day that is set aside from our earthly endeavors to engage in spiritual ones. So when God sets this sign in Exodus for his covenant people, he is adding a set, a sort of civic and ceremonial significance to a pre-existing reality. That's what I wanted to establish first, is this is like a tack-on. It has this significance, but then he puts more significance to it in the Exodus by attaching more information to that same day here in the Exodus. But then secondly, we can see in verse 18 of chapter 31, the enduring nature of one day in seven being set apart for the worship of God. How do we see that? Look at verse 18 of chapter 31. When God finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the testimony, stone tablets, stone tablets, inscribed by the finger of God. The two tablets inscribed in stone signify the permanent nature of the Ten Commandments. They are God's moral law, not his ceremonial or civic law that was specific only to Israel. Hear, hear me, the Ten Commandments are enduring because they are a reflection of the character of God. Now, the Ten Commandments are not a means to earn God's favor. If you're struggling with kind of putting all this together, you may need to go back and listen to the series on the Ten Commandments. But the point is that the Ten Commandments reflected God's own eternal character. So when I preached on the Fourth Commandment, in the setting aside of one day and seven for the worship of God, I argued that it endures even after Christ came to fulfill the law. It endures because it reflects who God is and it reflects the way God created us. It was a pre-existing reality, okay? So we're putting all this together. And the New Testament support for that idea, I argued, was found in Hebrews chapter 4. I don't have time to re-preach the whole message. If you want to go back and listen, go look for the sermon on the fourth commandment. But in brief summary, the argument of Hebrews 3 and 4 is that every time God did a significant work, God rested from that work. And then God set apart a day as a token or a reminder that we are invited to enter into the rest that God has already accomplished for us. A work, God's own rest, a day as a reminder, a token, a sign for us that we are designed to enter into the very rest God established for us. We don't work for it. We enjoy God's work. So when God created he created in six days. On the seventh day, God rested. And then he invited creation 
to enter into the rest that he had established. Having failed to do that, the fall occurred. And so then God, in the Old Testament, did a work of redemption. He redeemed the people of Israel out of slavery, and he entered into his rest in the promised land. And God appointed the same day, Saturday, as a token or a sign of the rest into which the old covenant Israelites were supposed to be entering into. But the writer of Hebrews interprets Psalm 95 as saying the Israelites failed to enter into that rest. So Hebrews 4.10 says that just as God worked in the creation of everything, so Christ being God worked in the setting up of the church and finishing his work, he also entered into his own rest just as God entered his. And as Christ did, he marked off a specific day for us, his new covenant people, because his entrance into rest took place at the resurrection on the first day of the week. Again, I can't preach the whole sermon, but you can go back and listen to the reasons why I argued that the entering into rest took place on Sunday at his resurrection, at the completion of our redemption. So this day, Sunday, the apostle John calls the Lord's day. It belongs to him. And it's a day, not just a few hours, that belongs to our Lord, Jesus Christ. We are to delight in regularly observing this day by commemorating and entering into the rest of Jesus' work of redemption, signified by him rising from the dead. And that day should include for us exercises of worship, both private and public. Now, what all of this means is that while there remains a sabbatism for the people of God, now, by the way, that's not my word. That's the writer of Hebrews' word. There remains a sabbatism for the people of God. It is done so to remember the work of Jesus Christ, and we are no longer under the harsh earthly penalties of Sabbath breaking that we see in verses 14 and 15 because we're not under the same covenant and not in the same ceremonial and civic laws that the Old Testament Israelites had. And praise God for that. Now, this is the third thing that we can easily observe as we look at the text today. You probably noticed it while we were standing to read. There was a certain sort of severity to Sabbath breaking in the Old Testament. Now, with that said, let me quickly note that God designed the Sabbath to always be a delight for his people. One commentator helps explain the harshness of the penalty like this. The death penalty doesn't seem as harsh when we realize what the Sabbath was intended to do. By not keeping the Sabbath, the Israelites were showing that they were not interested in knowing God. Breaking the Sabbath was an act of defiant rebellion. It was a repudiation of the covenant. It was like saying to God, you know, my relationship with you just isn't that important to me. You are not worth the time it would take to get to know you. When people say that, 
they're really cutting themselves off from God. And so it's only right for them to be cut off from God's people. And this is where a sobering thought can be brought forward as application for us as New Testament believers. Keeping the Lord's Day holy ought to be important to us because we also want to get to know God. We want to relate to him and know him. We want to grow in our relationship and make progress in our holiness. And for those of us who belong to Jesus, it's never a burden to remember the work that Jesus did when he died and rose for us and to enjoy a weekly token promise of the eternal rest that we are guaranteed by Christ's own resurrection from the dead. However, what it also means is that although failure to regularly observe the Lord's Day will not result in the death penalty, like the Old Testament and the civic and ceremonial laws, it can, can result in church discipline, which apart from repentance signifies that those individuals are indeed cut off from God's people. The spiritual reality of that points to a far greater penalty than even in the Old Testament. So we learn from the Old Testament. We learn from the type and the symbol a greater reality. God's people demonstrate who they are by regularly observing the Lord's Day. It's a way to commemorate God's work in both creation and especially in Christ's redemption. God's people have always observed the day to worship him, and we always will until he returns and we spend eternity in the rest that Christ established. It's one way the world knows we are different, isn't it? Not only are we God's ransomed people, not only are we God's spirit-filled servants, but we are set apart as different from the rest of the world because we gather regularly to worship Christ on his day. Last Sunday, uh, my family drove 40 minutes to go to a gospel preaching church on the Lord's Day which just happened to be Christmas Day. And doing so was one way to show our family and our friends the importance of gathering to worship God and that Christmas is more than the Hallmark Christmas Channel. Family and friends by the fire and warm, cozy feelings and hot chocolate. Christmas means Jesus came to save his people from their sins. That work and that rest of Christ's resurrection is the rest that we, God's people, are now entering into. And so we observe a day as an ongoing sign of that reality, that one day we will forever rest in Christ's work, the greater reality, redeemed by the work he accomplished on the cross. Brothers and sisters, in 2023, doing things God's way may not be convenient. It may not be glamorous. It may cost you something. But in every one of those aspects, everything we've talked about today, we show in our obedience 
We show the world and we show each other that we belong to God and that we are entering into his eternal rest where we will forever dwell with God and he with us. We were tabernacle with our Savior.